Hey there, friends of Holy Shenanigans Podcast. I'm thrilled to share that I'll be recording live from the Wild Goose Festival this July 11 through 14. Wild Goose Festival is a transformational community grounded in faith-inspired social justice. It's a one-of-a-kind gathering that brings together activists, artists, and seekers from all walks of life to explore justice and art, spirituality, and community. The festival will take place at Van Hoy Farms in Union Grove, North Carolina, and I'd love for you to join me there. From engaging workshops to inspired panels and interactive experiences, Wild Goose has something for everyone. So mark your calendars and let's be part of this incredible community that is committed to making a positive impact in the world. For more information, visit www. WildGooseFestival.org. As one of my followers, use a discount code A-TLE24. That's A-TLE24. And you'll get $50 off the price of an adult weekend ticket. We will see you there at the Wild Goose Festival to connect, to build community, and to work for social justice. of Holy Shenanigans podcast. This is Pastor Tara Lamont Eastman, and I am so happy today to introduce to you Reverend Erica Collect. Reverend Erica and I met at the Wild Goose Festival actually last summer, and we reconnected again this summer, but in the, the busyness and the heat and the humidity of that event, we said, let's have a conversation when it's a little bit cooler. And this conversation is, a, is an extension of the idea that was curated at the Wild Goose Festival this summer of Ignite and what ignites us in our spiritual lives, in our work, in our personal lives. What are the things that help build wholeness and wellness in each and every one of us? And so, Reverend Erica, I am so happy that you're here with us. Thank you so much. My pleasure. So I guess I'm going to start with that Wild Goose question, since that's where our conversation began is, you know, what is something that ignites your own life? What is something that ignites my own life? Well, I mean, I was thinking even about Wild Goose when he originally posed that question. And one of the most, I think, magical pieces is having folks or hearing folks find ways to connect their own stories with the kind of larger story of hope and justice and love. And really being able to find their space and place in that story of possibility. And so we watched it this wild goose with some young folks who came to help us put together overdose prevention kits for other community members and was able to, you know, listen into their stories about the ways that overdose and substance use has touched their families and that they have really struggled to find places where they were able to wrestle with those wounds and to find ways where they felt empowered to kind of bring about change. And so in this case, it's the hope that 
other families, other siblings don't have the same experience that they have had. And they sat there with us in the heat, in the humidity for hours and hours and put together hundreds and hundreds of overdose prevention kits that are going to be distributed throughout rural North Carolina. Wow, that's amazing. So tell me, what were you doing there at Wild Goose for those that don't know you? So I have the uh, honor of serving in a couple different capacities. I serve the National United Church of Christ as the Minister of Harm Reduction and Overdose Prevention Ministries. So we were there talking some about the fact that we had just passed this really incredible resolution, first ever uh, harm reduction focused resolution as we understand it. Uh, and secondarily also serve as the founder and executive director of Faith and Harm Reduction. And we're a national collective of people who use drugs, people who love people who use drugs, and faith leaders across a range of traditions. And so have been working, actually have shown up at the Wild Goose, have been invited to show up again, which is really wonderful, after, I guess it's three years now, to talk about kind of opportunities for people of faith and congregations and communities of faith to contribute to ending the overdose crisis and finding ways to kind of leverage their experience and local wisdom in their communities to help heal the harms of the war on people who use drugs. So we were there with a mock overdose prevention center station. So really doing some education and awareness building about some of the unfortunately, pretty contested, hard to access healing sites that are available for people who use drugs and providing folks with opportunities to A, do some really kind of pragmatic, practical resource gathering for their congregations. So we were making toolkits available for congregations and communities who want to be able to explore how you talk about the drugs issue and how you talk about the ways that overdose and The criminalization of people who use drugs is really impacting and creating wounds in our communities, as well as to share opportunities for action that faith leaders in particular can take to help us create communities of care and compassion for people touched by substance use. Thank you so much for that wonderful explanation. And I want to take a step back a little bit because you mentioned a few terms there that maybe some of our listeners aren't familiar with. So if you were to explain the harm reduction, let's start there. How would you explain that? Oh, goodness. And it really depends on what day you ask me. Quite often we talk about kind of harm reduction in these three different ways. So one is probably a term that folks are pretty familiar with, and that is we talk about harm reduction as risk reduction strategies or as ways to increase access to wellness. And that might be distributing sterile syringes for people who are injection drug users. It's also making access to naloxone available for communities and families where folks are at risk of overdose. Um, And so Risk reduction is kind of one of perhaps the most familiar ways of understanding harm reduction. Secondarily, we talk about harm reduction using kind of a lowercase hr harm reduction. And that is really the philosophy and the principles with which we endeavor to provide services or to show up in community with folks touched by substance use. And some of those principles are that it's led by people with lived and living experience of substance use. 
that we are walking alongside people, that we are following their lead, that we're leading with wellness and dignity as the core, that we are committing to eradicating stigma of substance use. And then we also talk about capital HR, harm reduction, which is really a movement for justice that centers, again, the experience of people with lived and living experience of the harms on people who use drugs and really, really pulling together all those threads that put particular communities and people at risk of greater harm. So talking about the criminalization of people who use drugs which we have seen really weaponized against largely communities of color, Black communities. And so helping to tease apart and provide really actionable opportunities for folks to find ways to promote equity and increase access and remove some of those structural barriers that prohibit people or limit people from accessing care. I find it fascinating that your call in your denomination is to this work. How did you come to that? (laughs) It was quite a long journey, I'm going to say. And, And when I talk about a long journey, not so much a long journey for myself of understanding that this was my call. Uh, I think I have been certain of this for decades, uh, long before I even kind of imagined that there was a role for me within the context of institutional church. I am a person who has been engaged in a long-term healing process from substance use disorder and overdose and had really struggled at the times that I had endeavored to find sites of compassion and care for my own self. I was connected to communities of faith that were deeply stigmatizing and were deeply othering and, you know, were moralizing. And I was convinced that it could be different and that my experience of the divine and of God was not one that matched (laughs) the ways in which I heard the church talking about myself and so got really involved actually in activist circles, kind of looking for and hearing those same threads kind of acted out in community and in relationship. And so really identified church outside of the walls as I had come to understand it. And in the context of that, you know, started hearing. And as I began with ways that my own story of navigating harms within the church, within progressive Christianity, was enabling me to listen into others' experiences in ways that helped elicit those same stories and helped provide safe space. And so a number of us started exploring what would it look like if we were able to co-create sacred space, which told our stories and allowed other folks to show up in those spaces with their whole selves and to also be able to tell their whole stories and be their whole story. So we started experimenting with different ways of doing that. Within that, I formed a very kind of particular resolve that I thought that the church needed to be one of those spaces. And I was going to somehow insist or force or craft a place. So I went to seminary and I studied. My whole focus was on practical theology and focused on harm reduction. And really, you know, in the in the fields of harm reduction, I got this just 
incredible example of what ministry could be and I thought ought to be. And that was as I had experienced it lived out by people who use drugs and people who love people who use drugs and their families who have been fighting to keep one another alive for uh, eons, long before many of us uh, dared risk enter this space or really give a shit about this space, quite honestly. And so I had the blessing of kind of connecting with some folks at the UCC who also, I think, grew over time and were willing to stretch themselves beyond stories that necessarily made sense to them in the beginning to look at ways that we might connect the work of harm reduction with the work of the UCC. Wow. I appreciate your vulnerability in sharing that. Thank you so much. Yes. If folks are looking for ways to persist, resist in any particular unique calling, since you have some experience in this, what advice would you give someone oh my seeking out a, a, a new way of being a pastor or a spiritual caretaker? I have the blessing of an incredibly resilient, love-filled, persistent community around me. I'm very clear that the strength with which I persisted and endured was not mine. And that it was, I think, taking these opportunities to be vulnerable such that folks could lean in and prop me up in ways that I don't think I even necessarily knew I might need. And yeah, so I think it was the willingness to tell my own story and the willingness to listen into others' stories and yeah, to really find those roots uh, in connection and community. Because I know a lot of folks, whether you call it deconstruction or as our, our friend Mike Burrell says, spiritual composting, I think that at some point there's that, that, you know, trying to seek your sense of vocation or call. And that is an important question that I think a lot of folks are wrestling with. I think for the longest time, I took for gospel truth, right? What I had been told about who God was and who the church was and who I was. And I can draw some parallels actually to my kind of understanding of my own path through healing from substance use disorder in 12-step fellowships, which I recognize work really well for a lot of folks, but when they're the only avenue that folks have access to, uh, a lot of folks get left out. Uh, and I was somebody who struggled with the kind of need to continually call out the fact that I was a broken sinner, somebody who had these, you know, character defects. And I, I knew myself and I knew God knew me to be somebody other than all these voices uh, had been proclaiming. And so I think that community piece was allowing me to kind of move and trust and challenge those and to assert theology and naming of self, which flew in the face of what I had been taught. And that was a really difficult and I think longer journey than I might have hoped for. And so, yes, when I hear you talk about the kind of compost spirituality or folks who do the deconstruction or the querying uh, of all of this, that that was very much what I was attempting to do. I just didn't know others were doing it. So 
I have similar ahas around that in my own journey where I'm like, oh, I wasn't alone that whole time. Imagine that sense of community is so important through these spiritual journeys. Yep. So can you tell me a little bit more about the organization Faith and Harm Reduction? We originally were founded as a formal collaborative of Judson Memorial Church in New York City, which is a UCC congregation where I have been based. I'm still based there and have been for quite some time. I was one of their community ministers. And now actually our office is based out of Judson and my position with the national setting is also a deployed staff member who is based at Judson. We were a formal collaborative between the National Harm Reduction Coalition and Judson Memorial Church when we got started back in 2017. I had been working for National Harm Reduction Coalition for, I think, when I resigned earlier this year. It had been 16 years. I had been serving in a development capacity, so I was their director of development for quite some time. And by having the opportunity to sit in both those spaces and some meaning talking about kind of ecumenical justice-based spaces, uh, UCC spaces, congregational spaces, as well as the harm reduction space, started hearing stories from folks and largely from folks with lived and living experience of, you know, asking some of these same questions or telling some of these same stories. Like, I would love to get married in a church, but my experience has been that because of what I choose to put in my body, neither my fiance nor I are welcome in those spaces unless we choose to stop using or have a desire to be abstinent. And then I heard from other folks, you know, the same, what would it look like if we were able to actually come in and help co-create sacred space where we were allowed to show up with the wholeness of who we are? And then hearing from pastors and faith leaders in all parts of the country who were really struggling to articulate the drugs issue and really challenge some of these theologies around people who use drugs, which really challenged the moralization and which has given real, you know, rich ground to the criminalization of people who use drugs and is really driving the stigma related to uh, those same communities. So started exploring with other faith leaders and with people who use drugs, like where are the opportunities for these conversations where we can listen into one another's experience and help craft this language that folks are so clearly asking for. And so a bunch of us gathered in Judson back in 2017, and it was called Shaping Sanctuary. And we started asking exactly these questions of one another. You know, what are the things you need from us? Or where are the opportunities and challenges for people of faith? And where are the opportunities and challenges for people with lived and living experience of substance use? And so this incredibly beautiful collective was built and is now a 501c3 as of January of this year. And so we branched out on our own. And so we are a national network, a national mobilization of these same folks who are looking to, you know, find ways to build communities of care and compassion in partnership with people who use drugs across the country. And that looks really different depending on what communities we're in. In New York City, that looks a lot like supporting the staff who are working at the overdose prevention centers and providing spiritual care in partnership with the New York State Drug Users Union, who are holding a lot of the weight of this current overdose crisis. It looks like faith leaders who just signed an amicus brief to support the establishment or the challenging 
that DOJ is putting to opening an OPC in Philadelphia as part of the Safe House versus United States lawsuit. It looks like making naloxone available in areas where it otherwise is not available and that faith leaders are taking those risks rather than kind of more marginalized and vulnerable community members who run the risk of, again, criminalization and incarceration based on their involvement in doing what is less than legal or extra legal, you know, syringe service distribution or others. And so we do a lot of this through we hold roundtables, we hold community conversations, town halls. Like I said, we've worked a lot on the development of spiritual care resources and contributing to the development of liturgy and other pieces that congregations or communities of faith might incorporate into their own life of their community. That's a broad spectrum from political action to grassroots work to supporting folks who, that are, are doing work with folks in the overdose crisis. Yes. That's, that's a broad sweep. So in my setting, I'm serving as a pastor in a small city in southwestern New York. What would you hope or what would you like pastors of these communities like mine or the folks who are members and community members there, what would you like them to know about the overdose crisis? What I would like them to know is that we have the opportunity to shape shift the overdose crisis such that there need not be another overdose fatality. We understand overdose to be an entirely preventable cause of death and that there are ways, small, large, Ways which intersect already with the ways that your congregation or community is providing love and partnering with community members. A, we know that you have folks who use drugs and folks who love people who use drugs in your congregations. And that if you're not talking about substance use, if you're not talking about overdose prevention, you're missing an incredible opportunity to welcome folks out of the shadows and to Really, you know, I, I, like I said, I'm, I'm based at Judson and, you know, we are a pretty progressive congregation within New York City. And we preached a sermon on the gospel of harm reduction and folks said they had never heard the drugs issue talked about from the pulpit, from a position of power in a way in which included themselves, their lovers, their friends, their children included explicitly as part of the community of the beloved and that they heard themselves named intentionally, which challenge the ways that we hear the culture at large talk about folks. So it's also, I think, an incredible opportunity for us to grow our understanding of the ways that language contributes to the overdose crisis and to the stigma of people who use drugs. Stigma, as I understand it, is really what is driving the bulk of the harm and is driving the overdose crisis. We have an incredible toolkit called the Spirit of Harm Reduction for Communities of Faith who are looking to really uh, challenge the culture of overdose in their communities and including language guides. Those of us in the Christian tradition, we understand that language creates worlds, right? So looking at the sort of worlds we're creating for people based on how we talk about these issues. And secondarily, I think also understanding our significant influence as faith leaders really helping to broach and break those silences around whether it be our own stories or 
stories of others so that folks here, here again, hear themselves included in the lives of our congregations. Anyways, I could go on and on and on. I mean, I will say, I think like a big piece has been this cultural piece and that it's, you know, again, not to go back to Judson too often, but that's where I'm based. And the congregation has been putting together safer injection kits and safer sex kits for some of the local harm reduction organizations throughout New York City for decades. And we had to start looking at some of the ways in which we had really institutionalized, again, this notion of kind of who we understood people who use drugs to be and us not being those people, right? And so we never once kept any of those safer injection kits or offered them to folks as part of our congregation. And my goodness, what an incredibly loud message and proclamation about who we understood ourselves to be and who we understood others to be and people who use drugs to be. So we had to start looking at ways that we could really uh, examine. We've had congregations talk about the ways in which they only offer AA and NA. Like I said, they're an incredible resource. And at the same time, like, are we also offering resources to folks who may not want to or desire to in that moment or ever, you know, stop using drugs? Are we also providing resources? Or are we saying that the only way that you are welcome in our spaces is if you are kind of engaged in this very particular pursuit of abstinence? Anyways, I think that those are some significant opportunities. You could start as simple as getting this kit from your organization and using that kit in your leadership and learning more about language. Be as simple as hosting an Arcan training, right? Yes, we have an incredible organization who works with some of our leadership team down in North Carolina, and they are a group of uh, octogenarians in a church in Hickory, North Carolina, and they are deeply troubled by what they see happening around overdose. And they're also pretty clear that their space is not hosting a syringe service program or maybe even necessarily hosting a naloxone training or overdose prevention training at their congregation. But what they do have is this incredibly robust crochet ministry called the Happy Hookers. And what they do is they make these beautiful, homespun, love-filled crocheted bags for people to carry their naloxone in and or safer injection supplies. And they're woven with reflective threads such that in low-light situations, folks can catch these reflective threads and find their supplies Yeah, so there's a multiplicity of ways for folks to get involved. Coming up on August 31st is National Overdose Awareness Day. They've got a really incredible website with resources and a whole range of communications and other attributes that folks can use if they're interested in identifying either an organization or an international overdose awareness event that's happening in the community. It lists those across the country, across the world. So folks can find ways to tap into those. Folks can find ways to host their own as well. And the hope really is, you know, it's multifold. And I think there's a a real duality often in these events that we're not only talking about finding ways to mark and honor and memorialize the countless lives, I mean, hundreds of thousands here in this country, 
just over these last couple of years who have died of an entirely preventable cause of death, which is overdose. And recognizing that many were stigmatized and were not honored and recognized for the fullness of their humanity. And so challenging and providing opportunities to really honor the fullness of not only people who have lost lives to overdose, as well as their loved ones who also experience the same sort of stigma often that they did, but also to recognize the incredible life-saving and life-giving work that is happening to ensure that no other family or loved one has to experience the same loss. There's also calls to action throughout many of these events. I know in New York City this year, we are focused on not only getting the governor to sign a kind of authorization for the overdose prevention centers and dedicating funding to that, In other states, it is really calling on the opioid settlement boards to ensure that money is getting to frontline harm reduction and overdose prevention work. In a lot of these states, none of that money has shown up yet. So finding ways to advocate for that, we're also going to, anyways, there's some real kind of specific calls to action. And so it's really not just a day of remembering, but it's also a call to action because our beloved folks are worth life. Yes, yes. In my role as a pastor, I've had the the humbling and sacred opportunity to walk with families who have lost someone to overdose or families that use drugs or people that love people that use drugs. And so having those relationships and learning people's stories has been a huge part of my own learning and yeah. my own understanding about how language is important in this work. But if folks are just starting to learn about harm reduction, if they're starting to learn about how to help maybe on a personal level, where would you point them to to start? Well, I mean, one thing obviously is our website, especially if we're talking about kind of folks who serve in a capacity as faith leader or lay leader in a faith community setting, that we frequently are hosting roundtables and clergy conversation series about how you provide this kind of sacred witness and support for families who are touched by substance use or how you grapple with, you know, what harm reduction looks like in the context of the Black church or in interfaith contexts. And like I said, our Spirit of Harm Reduction Toolkit is an incredible resource. You can access the PDF off our site, which is the best way to get it. There also are a number of allied organizations. So I'm thinking about Drug Policy Alliance, drugpolicy.org. And also the National Harm Reduction Coalition, which is also www.harmreduction.org. Both of those are incredible resources to A, understand kind of what the local landscape looks like, where folks are. I would also say that that's on Harm Reduction uh, Coalition's website. There is a tool to be able to find harm reduction orgs near you. So reaching out, inviting conversation, inviting local harm reduction orgs to come in and meet with you, talk with you, talk with your congregation, form some of those relationships, listen to their experience. That's the place I often recommend folks start first is listening in to kind of who the experts are in your area. Thank you so much. Is there anything else that you just want to share about the work that you do? Just that I'm really so thrilled by the courageous conversations I'm hearing a lot of faith communities have around kind of where these opportunities for growth might be for us. So 
it's become a bit of a tradition with the podcast that before we say farewell each episode is to one, give the website of where people can find you. So that's really important. So where can folks find you? So we are at www.faithinharmreduction.org and that's faithinharmreduction.org. <laughs> and also the harm reduction and overdose prevention ministries can be found at ucc.org. Awesome. One other thing, if you would indulge us, I would just love to have from you, Reverend Erica, a word of hope and encouragement for this very important work. What I would love to do is share one that I shared last weekend at an event called the, well, two different events, actually. One is one what's called the Trail of Truth, and it is national happening, which, again, honors and lifts up the lives lost to overdose and is run by an incredible organization started by families who have lost a loved one. And then secondarily, we offered this at the annual gathering of the New York State Drug Users Union, which is called the Peer Network of New York. And so this was the blessing I offered in both those spaces. Beloveds, as we co-create sacred space in our being here together this day, space which proclaims that people who use drugs are beloved and cherished by all that is sacred and divine, let us bless this space together. Let us bless this movement for liberation and love, and let us do so in recognition and honor of the ministry that we have continued to give life to. May the space we create in our being together be blessed. May the many stories and experiences embodied here among us be honored and held, ours a wisdom born of surviving. May our gathering be an active reclaiming of sacred space for us, movement leaders for liberation, we who love with abandon and without apology into action. We who know what love is. May it be a place to put down whatever is heavy and to take up what is needed and deserved. May it mourn losses and celebrate resilience. May it tear down that which harms and divides this war on our beloveds, on us, feels relentless. Give us divine rest and renew this incredible love and justice-rich resistance born here among us. And all the people said, may it be so. May it be so. Thank you so much, Reverend Erica, for your time with us. And I now get to tell you, you are fully and holy a holy shenanigator. Oh, I love it. <laughs> what a pleasure. Thank you so much for this invitation. You're welcome. Well, friends of Holy Shenanigans podcast, I hope that this has been an opportunity for learning and growing and um, building more compassion for all people. Um, and I thank you again, Erica, for being with us today. And please do go check out her website. We'll have all this information in the show notes so that you can find it easily. But until next time, I pray that all of you to be well, to be at peace, and know that you are loved.